Hi, welcome to Moving Beyond Pandemic, the new podcast from the Migration Policy Institute about travel, migration and mobility during COVID-19. The pandemic has scrambled just about every aspect of mobility and it will have long lasting, if not permanent, effects. Our podcast will dig into issues such as, is this a 9-11 moment for travel and health? Do quarantines work? Could COVID testing in airports revive the ailing tourism industry? And how might border closures affect the business models of smugglers and traffickers? I'm Megan Benton. I am Director of International Research at MPI and also our sister organisation, MPI Europe. In this episode, I'm talking to Brendan Dowling. He's the Senior Representative for the Australian Department of Home Affairs in the Americas region, and he leads Australia's international engagement on migration and border policies. Countries have been taking baby steps towards reopening borders that really slammed shut back in March amid growing recognition the pandemic had gone global. Now we're seeing the EU is welcoming tourists from select countries across the block. Flights have started up again in places, but it's all very tentative and everyone remains unsure of how to do this safely. We're basically in the dark about how well different tools work from thermal scanners to quarantine or testing. And many countries and actually individual airports are basically going it alone, which doesn't bode well for a coordinated response. I was thrilled to speak to Brendan about how Australia has responded and the broader implications for global mobility and international cooperation on what some are calling the biosecure border. Australia's kind of a test case for the rest of the world. It's one of the only places that was able to contain the virus. It locked down its borders hard to prevent further infections from abroad. But despite pretty tough quarantine rules, it's had new outbreaks. Uh, It's not planning to loosen border and migration restrictions anytime soon. And its plans for a travel bubble with New Zealand are on hold. It's even reimposed internal borders for the first time in the century, which some would think unthinkable in places like the US, which is also grappling with a highly asymmetrical caseload. Well, hi, Brendan. Thanks. Thanks so much for agreeing to chat to me. I thought we could start by just talking a little bit about what's happening in Australia right now. So Australia quite famously quickly got on top of the virus, in part because it's an island, but also because of its quite uh, forceful border closures relative to other countries. But now you're seeing yes. a bit of a bit of resurgence. Could you just sort of describe what's happening and um, what the sort of plan is now for for reopening borders? Sure, sure. So uh, that's right. Australia acted very quickly to put in very tight uh, border restrictions, um, both inbound and outbound. So we still have uh, mandatory quarantine arrangements for everyone who's arriving uh, into Australia internationally. um, And those are supervised quarantine arrangements. So in a designated hotel um, under under watch um, for uh, two weeks after arrival, But we've also had outbound travel restrictions uh, for some time now as well, where Australians and permanent residents, uh, if you wish to leave the country, need to apply for a specific exemption and there needs to be good reason uh, for that. So I think that's been um, a pretty key part of uh, our response to the pandemic uh, at this point. But I think the really uh, telling part of that is that 
half of those cases diagnosed uh, in Australia have been overseas acquired. So for us, the border controls, um, partly because of our isolation, um, have always been one of the really pivotal uh, responses uh, to the pandemic. And I think in terms of keeping things under control, are, uh, will continue to be a really key part. Um, at the moment we have uh, in Victoria, which is the state where Melbourne is, um, we do have uh, additional restrictions having come into place because we have seen community transmission commence again. Um, there were uh, yesterday another around 250 cases testing positive um, in Victoria. We've had a smaller outbreak in Sydney um, with 13 cases uh, diagnosed. Um, uh, yesterday's uh, testing positive, um, but some of those cases uh, are a result of um, uh, transmission from people who have arrived back from overseas. So it's really underscored for us. One, we were successful in getting an early move, but it's for, for the community and for the government, it's demonstrated how fragile um, that is and that any uh, complacency, any uh, premature loosening of the restrictions in Australia can very quickly see this uh, resurgence um, of cases. So it's been a, a fairly alarming, uh, I guess, wake up call for us over the last few weeks to see how quickly it can spread from a very small number of cases to um, a much higher number. Mm. Especially given these quite stringent quarantine rules and all the rest of it, the, yes. to have a lot of international transmission. I mean, Australia has been quite remarkable in the way that it's enforcing quarantine. Other countries just require you to fill in a form and it's all to do with just kind of self-compliance. Um, why, is, why is it still leaky? Um, and what's happening with quarantine that means that it's not working? I mean, maybe you could describe a little bit about how it works. So. Is the government still paying for quarantine um, and where does it happen? It's, is it still in hotels? Yeah, so when you arrive into one of the international airports, uh, you are supervised um, and taken to a, um, an allocated hotel. So you don't get to choose where you're going. You're allocated to a hotel or to an apartment complex, um, particularly for families who are, who are arriving. Um, there is that uh, ability now to be put in a, you know, a two or three bedroom apartment um, uh, according to your family size. Uh, and it's very strictly supervised uh, in those quarantine arrangements, um, basically uh, very limited contact uh, um, with anyone outside, uh, food delivery, contactless uh, food delivery. Um, and that sort of thing. So they're extremely um, uh, stringent. I think some of that transmission that we saw um, uh, from quarantine situations uh, really just demonstrates how hard this is to do and how hard it is uh, to get right. And that even when you put in those controls, uh, the insidious nature of this, uh, of this virus is that it, it, it transmits uh, so quickly that when there is some of that leakage, um, some of that, um, uh, uh, sort of imperfect bubble around uh, quarantine that uh, you can get unlucky and that you can see that transmission um, out of those um, uh, uh, facilities. And I think that's why we're seeing some of the, um, uh, some of the states implement uh, caps on the numbers of people that can arrive internationally. 
um, including, uh, for example, Sydney Airport is limited to um, 450 international arrivals per day, Brisbane Airport uh, 500 arrivals per week, to essentially ensure that we have, um, that we are able to manage those quarantine uh, arrangements uh, fairly strictly, seeing that they are such a critical part of the response. Um, what we're seeing now is that some of the states are looking at implementing um, charges for people who uh, are in quarantine. Um, that's something that the state governments are uh, responsible for rather than the federal governments. But I think um, they're, they're, they're quite expensive to operate, uh, obviously, and a few months into the pandemic and seeing that that initial rush of people trying to get home from wherever they were uh, globally um, has uh, tapered off uh, uh, in some respects and, and, and there is that view from some of the states that it's time to um, look at uh, what cost sharing arrangements there are in place where people take a bit more responsibility uh, for the cost of quarantine. Mm -hmm. And how much has this resurgence set back plans for the trans-Tasman bubble? <laughs> we were hearing a lot about that a few weeks ago, um, a few months ago, this idea of having a sort of a travel corridor, um, travel and migration corridor between Australia, New Zealand and the Pacific Islands. Is that still on the cards and what's the timeline? Sure, so it's still on the cards specifically with New Zealand. Uh, so we're not in talks with um, any other government uh, at this point. Um, the focus of the talks is on New Zealand. I think the it's given um, the the recent resurgence has given uh, a degree of pause, I think, um, for us to say, well, let's be very cautious about rushing into anything. So the talks are happening at the moment, but neither uh, the Australian government or the New Zealand government has been prepared to commit to any sort of uh, time frame as to when it would be um, uh, sensible to implement uh, that sort of arrangement. There's a lot of uh, community interests, a lot of business interests on both sides of the Tasman to getting it in place. But I think it will take uh, some time yet before we actually see it in action um, with uh, the confidence that both countries uh, uh, know that uh, the risks of transmission across those borders um, is uh, manageable and is uh, mitigated. Uh, so we weren't, we weren't, it wasn't imminent, um, but I think the, the resurgence has, has really sort of reminded that um, uh, we really do need to be extremely cautious about stepping into these sort of uh, arrangements because if it doesn't work well, you can potentially um, uh, have quite a damaging effect on both sides. So at this stage, um, there's no there's no particular time frame, but it's 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 some a, a little way off, I, I would say. And there's still quite a lot of detail that needs to be worked through between the uh, two governments before that actually comes into play. And so, is it largely about having a similar rate of transmission and a certain agreement between the two governments or is it also about building up a kind of infrastructure for contact tracing between the two countries or for COVID testing at airports for instance is it about not having to have any of those additional checks or yeah I think I think the ideal the ideal scenario would be that um uh, and perhaps 
going back a month, perhaps we uh, there was thinking on both sides that maybe we'd be getting to the point where uh, the risk of community transmission in, in both locations had been um, reduced to such a level that you could be confident that if someone was coming from the respective sides of the uh, Tasman, that um, the risks that they uh, uh, were carrying were, were essentially uh, negligible. And so perhaps that mean, means you don't need as much of the infrastructure around quarantine and uh, testing um, and such things as you might have um, otherwise. I think um, uh, the, uh, the, the, where, where it's at now is saying, well, that, that idea of having reduced it to negligible levels um, is probably some way off now. So are there mechanisms that you can put in place to um, uh, increase uh, confidence um, in that international travel? I think the challenge there, and this goes to a broader point around international travel, uh, is that um, it's really difficult um, uh, to know what of those uh, measures for, that will make international travel safe again and will allow us and other countries to open up our borders um, uh, is very tricky when you look at asymptomatic transmission and the questions that remain uh, over that. Um, when you look at the speed of, of transmission um, uh, that can uh, happen, I think some of the measures that we, we would um, in the future look to put in place um, that people have talked about, anything from temperature checks to uh, detected dogs um, to testing at airports, all of those measures, I don't think any anyone anywhere sort of um, sees that they're perfect solutions yet. I think there's too many questions that remain before um, uh, moving forward with those. So that, that sort of remains a bit of a question mark in, in the development of these sort of measures, where you, whether, you, whether you can actually implement measures at the border or at airports or otherwise that can give you that degree of confidence. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, I've, I've heard a few times people talk about how this is a, a 9-11 moment for health screening of procedures, but that broader transformation and what safe travel looks like, it still seems a long way off, really, um, in the sense yes. that very few airports are currently providing a COVID test on arrival. We don't really know where to put people while we wait for their test results. Um, how to enforce that and whether it could be scaled. Um, you mentioned temperature checks, but they're really quite a blunt, a blunt tool for something that, you know, doesn't always have fever and can be asymptomatic. So exactly. do, do you, what is Australia doing and, and to what extent is this part of a broader international effort or is it individual countries kind of going it alone right now? So we're talking to a lot of partners, uh, a lot of the countries um, in our region. Um, we have uh, exceptionally close relationships with the United States and Canada and uh, the UK and New Zealand on what our border policy settings are. So we're in a lot of conversations with uh, countries around what's being contemplated. And I think the it, it's a really uh, difficult area at the moment. I think there's this notion, um, as you say, the, the notion that it's a 9-11 moment for, for health screening. Uh, the other sort of concept which a number of countries talk about is, is the notion of a biosecure border. I think our thinking is, is evolving as more becomes known about the virus and the, and the um, 
uh, the way it transmits. And I think, again, if you go back a few months, um, the, the conversations uh, we were having with international counterparts were around, well, in a security sense, um, for a couple of decades now, we've been far more active at this idea of pushing the border out and that by the time someone boards a plane, you are confident uh, that they have met your requirements for entry into your country and that they don't represent a security risk to your country um, through physical screening, through um, intelligence analysis, um, uh, all those sorts of things so that you're not dealing with the risk when someone arrives in your country. And I think when you apply that sort of analogy to uh, uh, the health side, um, uh, it's really tricky to, to do the same thing. You look at um, uh, in previous uh, uh, epidemics or pandemics, if you look at Ebola or SARS, uh, there was that sense of people self-identifying uh, if they felt had certain symptoms, um, uh, there were in some places around the world temperature checks um, on arrival and trying to identify people who were um, uh, carrying uh, those uh, conditions so that they could be quarantined and to limit that spread. I think what we're looking at now with this um, uh, uh, virus is those are all manifestly inadequate. Um, uh, and so looking at what could you put in place uh, before someone uh, arrives uh, or before someone boards a plane, because if someone who is um, uh, carrying the virus uh, is on the plane or is uh, arriving, it's, it's already too late in many ways. Um, so what could you do beforehand? Uh, you could have people test, but the speed of transmission means that unless you're testing directly before someone gets on a plane, um, it's probably not actually worth, worth the uh, paper it's uh, written on. Um, do you test and then quarantine people pre-arrival? Um, temperature checks, I think you're right, are really not going to be adequate to uh, actually um, uh, reduce um, the risk. So of all those options you might look at, none of them quite look like they're being uh, they are likely to be uh, adequate to provide a high level of confidence. So then you sort of go back to what we have in place at the moment, which is to say, well, we cannot be confident that anyone who arrives at the border does not have the virus, therefore a mandatory quarantine arrangement um, is the best way to mitigate uh, that risk. The problem is it's expensive and it's not scalable. You know, you could not return to the levels of overseas travel or migration that we had in Australia while you have these quarantine arrangements in place. It's simply not possible. So I think for us and for a lot of other countries, this is an area where we don't quite have the right answer yet. The decision in Australia is to say, well, while there's so many unknowns and while there's so much risk uh, for international travel, we will keep in place um, what are very aggressive uh, requirements and restrictions. Um, other countries are obviously not applying uh, the same approach, um, but for us, until you kind of get to whatever a new new world for international travel and migration um, is, I think I think we will see our restrictions um, in place uh, for for months uh, to come. Um, and when they are eased up, they'll be eased up in a very slow and measured way, so that you don't all of a sudden create um, a, a whole new level of risk. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it, it seems to me as if perhaps the conversation we're having about transforming border architecture 
to be more um, to to be biosecure rather than to be focused on other types of security risks is it is actually not something that's happening right now but more of a long-term conversation about what will happen when we get a vaccine because it it seems as if um we're starting from a much much lower point than perhaps we were after 9-11 where there was already quite a lot of security-based infrastructure and the us was a really strong leader in that effort right now there's a bit of a vacuum a coordination vacuum um and not not much movement because there aren't very easy answers about how you do anything at scale so is the conversation about health screening and health procedures and the biosecure border actually about what we do when we have the vaccine mm. i think i think that's a, that's a that's a, a reasonable reasonable point i think that the one of the other differences as compared to 9-11 is that you had a much greater idea of what the what the threat was, um, and and yes, it evolved, and yes, there were sort of um, you know issues around. Well, um, we screen for certain things, but um, we don't screen for others. Um, what should be? Um, how do we uh, improve that? But there was a bit more clarity, I think, of this is what we missed, and this is how we can get better at not missing that sort of um, uh, threat in the future. Um, whereas I think the difference here is um, we don't actually know what's going to work um, for that sort of international uh, travel to mitigate um, this risk. It's a far more difficult um, uh, uh, conversation. It's a far more difficult. Um, there is no sort of technological solution that while it costs a lot of money, you can deploy and you can increase your level uh, of confidence. There isn't that um, uh, ability, which I think we saw post 9-11, where some countries essentially raise the expectations for what everyone needs to do and there was a real attitude of you know yes we we have some shortcomings here we need to come together to work on this but you you have that that vanguard of countries who say uh here is what we expect in terms of a baseline um level of a screening to take place if you want to fly planes into our country and that creates a real pressure that starts to spread and sees actually a global lift in what those baseline standards are. I think one of the big differences here is uh, we don't, you, you aren't able to say to another country, you need to do X, Y, and Z uh, to mitigate the risk because that X, Y, and Z is still a bit of an unknown. So I think to a degree there's, um, uh, yes, it's a, it's, 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 it's a difficult time for that global coordination uh, to uh, occur in the same way, but there's also a lot less clarity as to what that coordination um, should result in. And I, I kind of feel, um, uh, I think your, your point about the, the, the vaccine um, uh, is, is perhaps right, but I also feel, I think as a lot of people do, that every week brings a new understanding about this virus and how it's behaving and what the right response is. And so knowing sort of where we're at in three months time and, 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 and what we know then is really difficult to uh, predict uh, and, and that, will, that will still shape um, uh, what our response is. So it's, it's, it's I don't, it, it's, it's, it's a really frustrating area, I think, to make uh, policy because there's still so many unknowns around it. Yeah, that's great. Really fascinating stuff. I feel like I could talk to you for another few hours, but yes. we are about <laughs> out of time. Right, um, yes. It's been really fascinating talking to you and such an interesting, um, well, Australia is such an interesting case, but all of the themes that you've touched on are just so fascinating and so fast moving that I'm coming yes. away with more 
questions than answers. So thank you so yes. much for, for talking to me. Um, have, a, have a good day. Cheers. Thanks, Megan. It's been a pleasure. Listening to Brendan, I'm struck by two things. One is the non-linear nature of these border closures. We think of the process of reopening as one way, but as countries get on top of the virus, they actually have more incentive to close off from the rest of the world. The second is the length of time these border closures might last. Australia, for instance, hasn't offered any sense of when it might lift its border closures. In coming episodes, we'll be looking at this issue from different angles. What's happening on the ground in airports? How are countries working together or are they not? And what does health proofing look like for different types of migration? So thanks for joining us today on Moving Beyond Pandemic. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe anywhere you find your podcasts. We'd love a review. You can also get our podcast at migrationpolicy.org forward slash podcasts. I'd like to thank my colleagues, Lisa Dixon, Michelle Middlestadt, and Sarah Stadick for producing this podcast. The music you heard today was Juno in the Space Maze by Moo Pop. I'm Megan Benton. I'll see you next time.